Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. For our first episode, I spoke with Brad Longcar to discuss his thoughts about the current China biotech landscape. Brad is the CEO of Longcar Investments, a company that has created two indices or indexes tracking a basket of companies. One tracking companies in the cancer immunotherapy space, and the other tracking China biopharma companies. He was recently on a trip to Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong, attending the China Healthcare Investment Conference and visiting a bunch of companies throughout. And I got the chance to sit down with him. I learned a lot from our chat. One of which is to not record a podcast outdoors in a busy city like Hong Kong. I knew it wasn't the ideal situation, but since I don't have a studio or any professional recording equipment, I just hoped for the best. And Brad was really nice about it, so hopefully you'll overlook some random background noises the recording picked up as well. By the way, if anyone has a spare meeting room、uh, I could use sometime, that would be awesome. But we discussed a bunch of topics like how he became a biotech investor, how Hong Kong and China are starting to accept pre-revenue biotech listings on the stock exchanges, and his takeaway from the Chick conference. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Asia Healthcare Podcast, a podcast focusing on the different aspects of healthcare sector in Asia. This is the first episode, and I'm your host Jonathan Chan. Today I'm excited to be joined by Brad Longcar. He's the CEO of Longcar Investments, a company that has developed two unique indices tracking a basket of companies in the biotech industry. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks a lot for having me. And I'll say that if you hear any background noises, it's because we're sitting on an amazing patio right here in front of the harbor, in front of this incredible city. So it's a pleasure to meet you and have a chance to do this outside in in this great city. Well, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Brad. And hopefully it won't rain on us, but I think we're okay. So before we talk about your indices, could you tell us a little bit about your your story and how you got into biotech industry? Yeah. So. Thanks again for having me. So I've always both been a little bit of a science nerd and a finance guy, and I always invested in stocks at a young age. And I also love science. So I had a high school science teacher. His name was Al Frisbee, who had a big impact on my life. And I actually started out college as a pre-med major. So the college I went to, which was the University of Miami in Florida. Pre-med was a weed-out major, and、uh-huh. I got weeded out. <laughs> I loved biology, but I hated chemistry, and that's actually still true today. I'm terrible at chemistry, but I still kept that love of science. So I moved on to finance,、um, and that's what I earned my degree in. And I've done various things in financing my career. My first job out of college was at a huge mutual fund company called Franklin Templeton, and、um, So I always worked in the finance industry, but kept my enjoyment and spirit of biotech、uh, or science, and therefore biotech alive. And、uh, about 11 years ago, I was in between jobs when the financial crisis kind of hit, and I was looking for like an investment company to work for. And because the financial crisis was going on, there was really no jobs available. So I started investing. Just kind of tweeting and blogging. This is when social media was kind of coming to the forefront, and just sharing my ideas. And you know, started going to medical meetings like ASCO and ASH every year, and investment banking conferences. And I created、uh, with my family、um, what's called a family office, where we invest together.、Uh, and then I think what we'll talk about a little bit later is I got the entrepreneurial spirit and decided to create a business. Um, that focuses on creating indexes in biotech, and so 
that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 10 or 11 years is investing for myself and my family um, and also creating an index business that, you know, I hope to grow into a bigger thing. That's interesting. I can definitely relate to the, the chemistry part because I was terrible at uh, organic chemistry in, uh, in college. So you mentioned as an in independent biotech investor, you've created two indices. One of them is tracking cancer immunotherapy and the other China biopharma sector. So could you tell us a bit about how you decided to focus on these two areas and kind of your thought process behind it? Yeah, the idea is I wanted to make biotech more understandable and more inclusive for people outside of our industry. Like, I, you know, I just think what's going on in biotech and medicine and science today is so exciting. And, you know, it's funny, like everyone's understands tech because they see it every day. So like you see a Tesla driving down the street or like you have Twitter, you know, you order things on amazon.com. So everyone understands how technology is changing the world. But we have these amazing things going on in biotech like gene therapy and cancer immunotherapy and just genomics in general and you know these rare disease treatments that are going on and a lot of people haven't even heard of them yet. So I wanted to create financial products that makes it easier for people to learn about them and understand them from a stock market perspective. So I create what's called indexes. So let's take the China Biopharma Index that I created as an example. So like, why did I create that? I think what's going on here in China is one of the most exciting things in our industry. And in the US, we have something called the NASDAQ Biotech Index. And that tracks the up and downs of the biotech sector in the U.S. And that has value outside of the stock market. Like everyone in biotech benefits by knowing that. You can say, how did biotech do last year? It was down 10%. You know, how did it do, you know, five, you know, five years ago? It was up 20%. That has value. And so as I was researching the China biotech and biopharma industry here, I didn't see anything like the NASDAQ Biotech Index, so I created it, and that does two things. Number one is it helps people kind of measure and quantify the growth of you know, the biopharmaceutical industry in this area. And also, you know, we have a website and people can learn all of the companies that are a component of that. So it's like a great starting point to learning like who the players are and how they fit in. And also there's an investment angle to this. So I licensed the index to an ETF company that called Exchange Traded Concepts that creates ETFs and lists them on the stock exchange. And so people can use my index methodology as a way of actually investing in this if they prefer. But the main idea for the most broad audience possible is it's a really good learning tool to kind of Number one, quantify what's going on. So in this case, China Biopharma, or the other one that I created focuses on cancer immunotherapy. Um, it's a way to kind of quantify what's going on, to learn about the companies that are working on it, and is like a way for more people to understand these very unique things within the biotech sector. It's interesting. So you mentioned that um, one of the reasons you created these indexes is to help people understand the industry. So for someone who is not familiar with the biotech industry. Can you describe what cancer immunotherapy is and how to understand it? Absolutely. So 
you know, immunotherapy is using the immune system to treat cancer. And it's really interesting. People have literally wondered for over a hundred years, like, why does the immune system not naturally recognize cancer as something that's foreign and attack it like it would a virus or something, you know, something like that. And there was a big breakthrough. In fact, the discoverers of this breakthrough, uh, t uh, Jim Allison and Tezuko Hanjo, literally won the Nobel Prize this last fall for learning this. There was a big breakthrough that one reason why the immune system doesn't do that is because there's a protein marker on the outside of many cells, including cancer cells, that's like a stop sign. So that protein um, is called PDL1. And uh, as we've discovered that, what pharmaceutical companies are able to do now is to I inhibit that. And there's also another protein like that called CTLA-4. That's what Dr. Allison discovered. But the main idea in layman's terms is that there are markers on the outside of cancer cells that are what we call like putting the brakes on the immune system, or it's like a stop sign. And there was this big discovery about taking those brakes off. And it's created this whole revolution now of using the immune system itself to treat cancers. So rather than using a chemical drug or like a chemotherapy, you're using your patient's own natural immune system, which it, you know can learn and adapt to treat the disease. And after that first discovery now, this area of immunotherapy has gone in many different directions. So there's what's called cellular immunotherapies. A lot of listeners might know the term CAR-T. So that's like taking a patient's own T cells, which are the main attack cells of the immune system, and reprogramming them so that they can better recognize cancer and attack cancer. So the main like idea here is, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years, we had a revolution with kind of chemotherapy, you know, making a big difference in certain types of cancers. And I believe we're in the very early years of doing the same thing with immunotherapy. And it's already the foundation of care for many different types of cancers. But today, not enough patients respond to them. You know, we wanted to help as many people as possible and to work in as many different cancers as possible. But I think this is like a revolutionary corner of the biotech sector. And so that's why I created this index that like focuses on it and allows people to learn more about it and to focus on it because it's, you know, I feel it's kind of like a really high impact disruptive science that is something that you want to focus on because this is where the big advances are happening in the oncology space. Hmm. So right now you're based in the U.S., but you come to Asia a lot and with all the frequent traveling and I'm sure you're meeting a lot of people um, both on the U.S. side and, and, and here in Asia. What have you learned about the two uh, sides of the world in terms of the bio sector? Yeah, so the biggest thing is, like, I think that China is having a biotech moment that is, only comes around once. And mm. the analogy that I use is I really think that China's biotech sector today is like the U.S. biotech sector in the 80s and 90s, meaning I think it's just getting started. And that's very exciting because, of course, it's such a huge market um, and like a wide open space both to sell drugs and for companies to be incubated that may develop new innovative drugs um, of their own. And so how I came across my radar is 
I obsess about biotech like 24-7. I literally like eat, sleep, and breathe it. Um, and I would say like three or four years ago, you started noticing it, the China angle creeping into the news. Mm. So you might see like a Chinese company sign a licensing deal with a US company with like, you know, a compelling upfront, you know, and financial terms. And that just started happening. And then one thing that I think was a real turning point for me is there are a couple companies that listed on NASDAQ in the US, Bygene and then Xilab. And it was just clear that this was really world-class caliber companies that were doing world-class science. And that was, I think those two companies listing was the thing that really solidified to me that something important is happening here. And then also over time, as I said, like it started showing up in the news, that kept getting more frequent and you know the news itself became more interesting and more important and so I wanted to start researching it and kind of finding out what's going on here and to, to learn about the biotech community so I started researching it you know I started traveling here and again I, I think that this is US biotech in the 80s and 90s like I think there's a Genentech here there's an Amgen here there's a Celgene here and they're small companies that, especially outside of China, most people haven't heard of yet, but they will one day because the potential is so great. I mean, you literally have a healthcare market with 1.5 billion people that's going mm -hmm. exclusively from a generic drug model into an innovative drug model. And there are some big implications, not just within China, but outside of China for that to happen. And you know, you've had reforms here, the Chinese FDA, which is now called the National Medical Products Administration. You've had these entrepreneurs like, you know, Samantha Du at Xilab returning home and starting these great companies. You have the biotech change at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is actually just a few steps away from where we are um, mm -hmm. recording this today. Before last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange had a rule that said if you don't earn revenue, you can't list here. So of course, that describes almost 95% of biotech companies. So they didn't even have a stock market for the biotech sector here until just seven or eight months ago. So you have all of these important foundational changes happening at the same time. And if like one or two of them was happening, I would say this was an exciting market that you should mm -hmm. put on your radar. But the fact that like four, five, or six really important things are pointing of change or pointing in the right direction like that, I just think it's a very special moment. And it's not going to happen overnight. Science takes time, so you can't expect everything to be perfect tomorrow. And biotech itself, of course, is very volatile, and there's many ups and downs and kind of two steps forward and one step back. But if you look at it from a macro perspective, with all of the things that are brewing today, what can this look like in like 2025? And you don't obsess about the daily stock movements or the daily headlines. There can be a really special and world-class caliber biotech sector here. And I think as a biotech investor myself, you have to focus on that because the growth potential is significant if all the right reforms and right moves and right science keeps happening here. It can be very important to our entire industry. And so I wanted to be ahead of the curve on that. And 
you know, that's why I travel here so much, to learn about it myself, you know, meet the people, talk to the experts like yourself, you know, who's been around it so much, and try to educate myself, and however I can, translate that knowledge to U.S. investors and help them learn about it as well. Hmm. So this is a good segue to my next question, and I think you've uh, answered most of it, but, you know, speaking about the Hong Kong Stock Exchange's rule change, as you mentioned, a, a couple of uh, biotech companies have started to list here. Do you think this is a, an emerging trend and that uh, over time you'll see more and more biotechs considering listing in Hong Kong uh, as opposed to U.S.? Uh, and maybe in the future, you know, we hear that China is also considering uh, adopting this type of change. So how do you think the, the I guess, the IPO market will, will, will look? Absolutely. So this is something I have very strong opinions about. <laughs> so let's first maybe talk about what's happened and like the significance of it. So Hong Kong Stock Exchange officially changed that rule on April 31st of last year, so 2018. And the first IPO happened at the beginning of August. And to be honest with you, it was terrible. It couldn't have gone worse. Like it was an epic disaster. <laughs> And there were a couple that followed that. Um, Baijin had a secondary listing, and there was another company called Hua, and those actually haven't been so bad, but they haven't been rocket ships either. And one thing that's been frustrating is after the, those first three happened, a lot of people wrote stories that the verdict is out. You know, like the Hong Kong Exchange Biotech experiment happened and it didn't go so well. Um, and I'd say a couple things about that. So first of all, again, the right way to think about this is in the context of like, what's this gonna look like five years from now? Like you can't judge something by how a few stocks are trading three months later. And by the way, you know, you also had the trade war that was a major issue. We had an interest rate, the Federal Reserve did a dumb thing with interest rates and realized that and that killed stocks throughout the entire globe. You had a vaccine scandal that was happening here at the time. So you had a lot of forces outside of biotech that were making a not so great situation worse. But the important thing is that these are like great companies doing great science. And regardless of how you kind of view the valuation, the fact that they're now listing on the stock exchange is a pretty compelling and exciting thing. Now, since then, there's been a turning point. So there's a great company called Innovent Biologics. They're based in Suzhou, and they're a big, of course, biologics company, and they were founded in 2011. So a lot of people are hearing about them for the first time, but they've been conducting good science, and let's remember that science takes time. They've been doing that since 2011, and they went public later in the fall, and as we're talking today, since that one went public, it's up like 140%. And then there was one that went public on Christmas Eve called Junshi that's up like 60%. And Wuxi Aptech, which is not really like a classic biotech company, it's you know more of a large CRO, but still, it had a secondary listing in like the mid 60s and now is almost 100. A few weeks ago, you know, we're recording this in early April. In February, there's a company called Seastone that's up like 40%. Cancino or Cancino a few days ago vaccine company is up like 50%. So you had like three bad to mediocre debuts and everyone formed their opinion on 
what's going on here. And then since then, you've had companies that are doing great. And biotech people see that, but a lot of non-biotech people form their opinion by how the first few went. And so what I would say is, you know, I want to spread the word to people that this is going pretty darn well if you look at it from a macro level and don't focus on the first couple. And when the first few went out, there were about a dozen that signed up behind it that kind of paused their plans. And now that IPOs are doing well again, I expect there to be a big rush of new listings. So that's actually one thing that I'm trying to accomplish on my trip today is find out from experts like bankers and lawyers and people like that what to expect throughout the rest of the year and I'd say most of what I'm hearing is to expect maybe like one a month um, so maybe like 10 to 12 this year and you know who knows with the ones that are going so well lately the herd mentality might come back and everyone might try to you know to do it now so it could even be more than that now the other thing you asked about is the the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So they're creating something called the Tech Board there. And the idea is to kind of model it off of the NASDAQ in the United States. And I do think that that will be successful and there's certain companies that that's the right place for. So that was actually personally announced by President Xi in November during something called the Import uh, Conference. And, you know, whenever the President mention something there's a high priority to make sure it happens and gets done right there so there's a big emphasis by the securities regulators and the pharmaceutical regulators to make sure that there's a good home for biotech on their tech board there and a lot of the people that I've talked with here in Hong Kong over the last week have said there are a lot of companies that are enthusiastic about listing there now what I will say from like my Western perspective is the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, I put on the same level, meaning they're global exchanges, they're transparent, their regulatory forms are all in English. And so there's a 100% comfort level from investors around the globe with those exchanges. The Chinese stock exchanges are not like that yet. You know, it's still more of a closed environment not all investors have access to it. Sometimes it's costly. You know, sometimes there's language barriers and things like that. And so my expectation is like, you know, the Innovents and Seastones of the world, these are companies that want to be global leaders, not just leaders in China. My expectation is that for the time being, companies like that will still choose Hong Kong or NASDAQ over this China tech board. But I do think the tech board has a big role to play, especially for domestic Chinese companies that are more focused like exclusively on the domestic market. I think that this will be an attractive option for them. And from what I'm hearing from speaking with people this week is that there's a pretty big pipeline of companies that that would be an appropriate, potentially very good venue for. So we'll have to see how it goes. Okay. Well, this is a good point to shift to talk a little bit more about China. So. Since we're on this topic of the Shanghai um, Tech Board, one thing I want to ask you is, currently your China Biopharma Index is comprised of um, Hong Kong stocks and also some NASDAQ listed stocks as well. So do you think in the future, if we do see some biotechs listing in Shanghai, would that affect your composition of that index? 
Definitely, if the quality's there. So right now we're taking a wait and see approach. You know, we mm -hmm. want to see the first handful or maybe even the first dozen listings to see how they go. One thing I've been talking to a lot of bankers about here is I'm not even sure that foreign investors will be able to invest in the tech board. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, it would make no sense for me to include them in my index because the idea is to help investors understand how to invest in this region. But setting that potential issue aside, which I'm not totally clear about because I'm getting conflicting advice from different people, We'll take a wait-and-see approach because, again, as, as I was kind of just describing, there's a comfort for Western investors or, like, you know, U.S. investors specifically. There's a comfort level with investing in NASDAQ and Hong Kong that's not there with the domestic Chinese market yet. But that can change over time. And so if enough really good biotech companies list there and we feel like we're missing out, then of course um, we would add them in the future. But right now that actually is a written rule that only NASDAQ and Hong Kong companies are eligible right now. So you were recently in Shanghai to attend the conference, uh, the China Healthcare Investment Conference. So can you share a little bit about what was their experience at the conference and any uh, main takeaways? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, you know, since I'm interested in China biotech and a lot of U.S. people see that, I get questions all the time from investors and companies. Companies will call me and say, hey, like, we're not doing anything in China right now and we'd like to start pursuing it. Like, where do we even get started? And one thing I would say is that's a great conference. So this was actually the 10-year anniversary of it. It was founded by a group of venture capitalists um, 10 years ago. And to my knowledge, I've been to a few other conferences throughout the year in, in China and here in Hong Kong. To my knowledge, that's, I think, the best healthcare conference. All the main companies are there, and they just put on great panels and have great speakers and everything. So the first thing I'd say is if you're one of those people that are saying, I don't even know where to begin to start learning about China and how I can get involved in it. The Chick Conference, which is usually in March each year, is a pretty good conference just to come and like watch the panels and meet with people and it's a good starting point. So that's the first thing I would say. And in terms of the topics, um, I think you might ask about this uh, in a little bit, but the number one thing that's on people's mind right now is the pricing of innovative drugs in China. And specifically, and this was something that really at the conference like opened my eyes, is how the pricing of drugs in China might one day affect the price of drugs all over the world. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's really important is that what's happening here isn't just a China story, it's a biotech story. Like the world is interconnected and getting smaller and what's happening here is going to affect everyone in a way. And so like, for example, you know, one of the main immunotherapy medicines that we just described, the like take the brakes off, those are called PD-1 inhibitors. And there's a really interesting thing that happened in the news recently. So one of the most popular PD-1 inhibitors is called Keytruda from Merck. And Merck last fall had that approved for melanoma in China. And after that approval, one thing that made global headlines is they announced the price of Keytruda in China. 
and essentially it's about half the price as it is in the U.S. So in the U.S. it's 150,000, and they announced that the price in China would be half of that. And you know the pharmaceutical industry is so complicated. Then there's like patient discounts and all of that. So even that is not the actual price. But for the purposes of our discussion, think of it as like half the U.S. price. And when they announced that, that made, especially in the U.S., tons of headlines. Like I, I saw all these stories like. Merck is charging half for Keytruda is what they're charging in the U.S. And, you know, of course, drug pricing is a major, rightfully so, issue in the news in the U.S. So, you know, the way that that was kind of written about is there's this drug that was developed and approved in the U.S. And U.S. patients are paying like twice what Chinese patients are. And, you know, there's like political issues and everything. So that made a lot of headlines. But what's... I think super interesting is shortly after that was approved for melanoma, there's a domestic Chinese company called Shanghai Junqi Biosciences. And they had a PD-1 approved also for melanoma. So it's like a good comparison. And they announced their pricing in December. And it depends on the weight of the patient because they're priced per kilogram. but. Their pricing is like half to a third of Merck's 50% discount price, which is amazing. I mean, it's incredible. Like the, the U.S. dollar equivalent to that is like $30,000. And I didn't see any headlines about that one. I mean, like, I, I guess not a lot of people outside of China have heard about Junchi yet. But that's really eye-opening pricing that that is going to happen here. And the thing that I learned at the conference and the thing that is really at the top of my mind right now is how that pricing and that story is not just a China story. Because one thing that's a term that's very common in our industry today that was not talked about years ago, there's a term called reference pricing. And what that means is like, you know, like in the U.S., like Donald Trump, for example, has been saying, like, you know, I'm angry that, you know, we pay these high prices and in Europe it's, like, much cheaper and, like, we're subsidizing their low drug prices. Like, we should pay the same price as, like, Europe. The term for that is reference pricing. And the fact that there's this new enormous geography in China that before today had only generic drugs that now has innovative drugs and we've learned that the price of those innovative drugs is the newest by a large factor low reference price that has implications for our whole industry because if the price is that low here maybe it'll bring down the price a little bit in Asian countries and then maybe if that happens it'll bring down the price in European countries and if that happens it might do the same in the US so the world is interconnected and that is going to impact our entire industry like these multinationals like the Mercs of the world that sell these drugs everywhere are going to be impacted by how they're sold and priced here and I don't think a lot of at least I wasn't thinking of it that way very much um, until I went to that conference. So that's something that's really opening my eyes in terms of this new biotech sector here, potentially not just being a China like growth story, but being something that like could potentially affect drug prices and just how our industry operates throughout all regions of the world. And I think it's a really interesting thing, you know, 
for decades all we talk about is rising drug prices and how frustrating it is and I just went to a conference where we were talking about competition and drug pricing drug prices going low for the first time so in a refreshing way it's kind of a new thing yeah pricing has been such a big uh, topic especially in China um, as you know they're undergoing such a massive healthcare reform in the past decade you know they recently updated their national reimbursement drug list the NRDL in 2017 and before that it was I think it was 2009 so it was a long delay and I remember this clearly because I wrote the story on um, the announcement that they updated the list um, I remember Roche took 70% price cut um, and then you have all these other multinational pharmas as well and I think the main the main idea is that they want to get on the list so that there's a, a higher uptake uh, in terms of volume because it's such a big market the Chinese market is now I think uh, the second largest pharmaceutical market in the world. Do you feel like big pharmas, they need to continue to look for more innovation? And how do you think their growth will, will look in the future? Yeah, I think a couple things. So first of all, you're right on. So when you mentioned Roche, I think you're talking about Avastin. And, you know, this goes back to like, why is what's going on in China special? Well, one thing that's special is the regulatory reforms that are that are happening so like you said it used to take sometimes seven or eight years to get on the national reimbursement list and in some cases now it's taking like a year so that's hugely positive for the entire industry and in terms of how it's all going to shake out I think the biggest the number one thing especially for like a generalist person who might be listening to this is the most important thing that's happening here is this market is shifting from generics to innovation. And there was this big thing in the news at the end of last year called the 7 and 4 pilot program. And what that means is there were 11 Chinese cities that kind of banded together and said, we're going to create an auction process for the way we purchase generic drugs. And we're going to have what is essentially going to be a winner-take-all strategy for certain diseases and illnesses and, and generic drugs that treat those. And so they had this big auction process, and a lot of the you know traditional generic drug companies in this region, because it was a winner-take-all event, were extremely, extremely aggressive on how they bid it, on how they bid for that. So they cut the price of some of these generic drugs by like 80%. And that's going to have a huge impact on the generic drug industry here. So I think that you're in big trouble if you're a generic drug maker in China and that's your strategy going forward because even the winner, the margins are so low compared to what they're used to, not to mention the fact the dozens and dozens of losers who their revenue is now zero. So. A really important thing to know is that the generic drug business went from being everything and a pretty decently high margin business in China to overnight being just about the worst business you could possibly be in. And so to get to your question about M&A, I think what that's going to mean going forward is there's going to be a big shakeout in those companies. I don't think it really applies to the multinationals or anything like that. But what I think is 
those companies are going to have to go through a big thing of consolidation to bulk up and increase their scale, number one, but more importantly, number two, they're going to have to start to get into innovation too. So I think one of the positive things of China really scrutinizing how they're going to pay for generic drugs going forward is there's going to be a lot more money available to pay for innovative drugs. And the generic drug makers see the writing on the wall. And I think that's a good thing. So like I'll give you an example of like a company I follow pretty closely that I think is making good moves. So like uh, Fosun Pharma. That is about as classic as a generic drug company as you can get. But over the last year, they've started doing a lot of innovative things. They partnered with Kite Pharma, so now Gilead, on CAR-T cell therapy, which is about the most innovative thing you could get into. I mean, it's literally like a new era of medicine. They have a partnership with a company called Revance that they just um, signed a few months ago for um, an aesthetic treatment that's kind of like Botox. And so these generic companies Number one, I think you'll see consolidation, but even more importantly than that, they're going to all start to shift their business models towards innovation. Literally, before I'm meeting with you now, I just met with a, a company called China Grand here in Hong Kong, and that's what they're doing. You know, the CEO of that company was telling me when he became the CEO 12 years ago, they were just making APIs, so pharmaceutical uh, ingredients. And then they started selling drugs, but all generic drugs. And now, because of the way the sector is changing, they're starting to bring in, you know, innovative foreign drugs and start to develop ones of their own. And so I think that the whole industry is going to have to shift. And, and that will have some, like, consolidation and M&A implications to it, without a doubt. You know, one other thing to say in terms of that is with innovative medicines now being paid for by China, you know, China's actually last year and this year published a list of like 60 medicines they want in the country that they don't have. And they're basically inviting these multinationals, you know, to develop and, and to seek regulatory approval for them here. And now that those drugs are getting paid for here, which is really important, I think you'll see a lot of multinationals license them to Chinese companies and partner because the commercial market, you know, this market is so huge. And in China, the individual regions, like you have to have like a presence in all of them. It, 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 it's kind of like, you know, in the United States, if you get your drug approved and you want to sell it, you also kind of have to get it approved in each state. The same is true here in China or that type of concept is true here in China, but it's also on like a gigantic, enormous scale. So you can't be a multinational and just say, we're going to hire local people and have a sales force. It takes a lot of expertise to really understand the uniqueness of the system here. So now that drugs are getting reimbursed and paid for, I think you'll see a lot of U.S. companies licensing them to Chinese companies who are experts in the commercial field here and we've already seen that literally every day i wake up and you see press releases about some u.s company that's licensed a drug to a chinese company and i think you'll see even more of it in the future that's really exciting and um, i'm looking forward to seeing how the market develops so um just to wrap up this podcast i think they're closing here soon um can you give us your outlook for the sector in the next maybe five ten years I guess first of all, I'll talk about how we're currently 
there are kind of macroeconomic factors at play, like the trade war, and how do you think that will play out uh, eventually? And um, yeah. yeah, your long-term outlook? Yeah. Well, you've asked the right yeah. question because usually when people ask me that question is they say, like, what do you think 2019 is going to be like? And I'm not smart enough to know. Like, I've been around investing long enough <laughs> to know that truly anything can happen. And real quick, in terms of the trade war, you know, knock on wood, fingers crossed, as we speak today, that seems to be wrapping up. And the latest headlines, you know, seem to suggest that maybe, you know, later this month in April or sometime in May, they'll finalize that. But that's been a huge overhang. It's interesting, like, it actually shouldn't affect the pharmaceutical industry. For example, before the trade war started, just a few weeks, China eliminated tariffs on cancer medicines to zero. And they said they wanted to do the same for other types of drugs. And the reason is because they're eager to get these innovative medicines here. So the trade war, as you classically think of it, is like tariffs and things like that, actually should not be impacted. But psychological impact is totally different. So it's killed kind of both stock markets and dragged all stocks down and, and you know biotech is the most volatile sector so when the stock market goes down often biotech does worse and so that's happened a lot with this trade war but it seems that things are getting better but you know life is unpredictable and let's hope that some impasse doesn't happen that extends this for months or even years so we'll have to see how that goes but in terms of my long-term outlook You know, it really goes back to what I said, that I think we're in U.S. biotech in the 80s and 90s. And I think that if you do have a long-term perspective, as you ask the question, you know, China has this program made in China 2025. And the idea behind that is shifting the economy in China from traditional sectors like manufacturing and mining and things like that to more innovative areas like clean tech and solar and pharmaceuticals is one of those. So there's big government backing to be globally competitive in pharmaceuticals by that time. So when you add the government focus to the changes at the Chinese regulator, the National Medical Products Administration, to add in all the entrepreneurs and scientists that are returning home and creating these first-class companies, add the Hong Kong Stock Exchange allowing a listing venue for these companies and Shanghai doing the tech board. There's so many arrows that are pointed in the right direction now that I think it's going to be volatile over time because biotech is naturally volatile. But if you take all of those things, I just think that, you know, it's truly promising if you think about what this could look like 20. 20 or 2025 time frame so I just truly believe this is one of the most exciting things that's happening in biotech and I plan on coming back here a lot and you know watching it unfold and I think it's going to be quite exciting. Oh that sounds great Brad I'm looking forward to seeing you again um, so for our listeners if people want to find your work or follow you how, how can they um, find you? Sure there's a few ways I'm actually all over the place <laughs> um, the biggest way is I'm a big Twitter person, so my, my Twitter account is my name, Brad Loncar, all one word, so I'd say, you know, follow there, and I comment on kind of the daily news. Um, I have a blog website where um, I post a lot of information about biotech, and also sometimes write blog posts, so that's loncarblog.com. 
And then if you want to learn about the indexes, that's longcarindex.com as well. And that's a great starting point to learn about the companies that are at the forefront of immunotherapy and China Biopharma. Thanks, Brad. And thank you for um, tuning in to this first episode of Asia Healthcare Podcast. Hopefully, I'll get to do more of these as I go along. And I'm doing this just out of hobby, and it gives me a chance to meet biotech experts like Brad here. So, yeah, if you want to follow me as well, I'm on Twitter as well, at jchanpharma. And let me know how this one worked out, and uh, hopefully for future episodes, we'll continue to talk more about Asia Healthcare.